0: Hello and welcome to episode twelve of Hunting for Candlelands. This week we interview Frontier Ruckus, my new favorite band. Also, we'll have part two of Mike Schwartz's discussion of women in the workplace, a book review by Dan Hartman, and a new feature which you, the listener, can get involved with: Song of the Week. We'll close with a song by Frontier Ruckus, and uh, that should wrap it up. But I think there'll be plenty for you to enjoy. First, here's me talking to Frontier Ruckus in Ann Arbor. Oh, by the way, you might have you might hear me talking about Diane Wakoski with them. She was a professor at Michigan State University and a well-known poet. All right, so uh, I'm here with Matthew, Davey, Zachary. Uh, September 28th, Blind Pig, Frontier Ruckus. Um, we were just talking before. You guys originally, where are you, where are you all from?
1: The three of us from Metro Detroit Milford, okay. mm-hmm. uh, like Sylvan Lake, Kego Harbor area, uh, uh-huh. and Rochester. Rochester. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And then uh, you guys went to Michigan State, you went to Michigan. Yeah. All right. How was the band? How was the band formed, and how was it? How did you keep a band together when you were sort of two different places?
2: Oh, wait. Oh, sorry. Not
0: problem.
2: <laughs> it's met. a real exciting tale. Yeah,
0: we <laughs> I'm
2: already bored. Uh, no, i telling it. We 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 met in high school, and Davey and I did. Yeah, we and I met in, in drama class, and, and we. Uh, we just started playing together in Smith yeah, we went to Brother Rice, which
1: is a all right. male Catholic high school
2: and we used to, like we started playing bluegrass songs together, like we used to cover mm-hmm. flatten and Scruggs and like,
1: olden in the way, stuff like that, and I started writing bad songs and then I started <laughs> playing those and then I started writing less bad songs.
0: How did you get into like, ban- I mean, you were playing banjo back then. How did you get yeah. into bluegrass and banjo and that sort of thing? Uh, my
2: my dad kind of got me into it. He listened to a lot of bluegrass, and and I, I was really into into the banjo for some reason. I was really into the sound of the banjo, and, and just one day my mom like went to a garage sale and there was a banjo there and she bought it for me. Nice. So and then there's a guy that took lesson that they gave lessons just kind of right down the road from my house in Rochester, and it just all it all happened. Yeah. It all worked out. Yeah. God bless garage sales. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I kind of fell in love with it.
0: Similarly, how did you learn to play a musical saw? Uh,
3: yeah, I, I borrowed my dad's. Uh, that was the first one I played. But I saw a band that had a musical saw, And I had heard it before on, like, on albums. But I, when I saw it, I was like, oh, I, I should do that. I just got obsessed <laughs> for a few weeks and bought one. I bought a bow to go along with my dad's can you play a regular song or does it have to be a special yeah it's like a it's, it's gotta be that shape for my dad's uh, it was just a wood cutting song uh-huh. now now uh, I, I got one at Elderly Music uh-huh. um, a while ago and uh, it's better range better tone but
0: yeah. it, it doesn't cut as well that's the
1: problem <laughs> <laughs> doesn't cut it
0: um, I first heard you guys um, a friend who works at WYCE in Grand Rapids shared your video of Nerves of the Night Mind and I, I was working on my own music, and I heard your song, and I got immediately depressed because I wasn't sure I was going to be able to write something as good as that. <laughs> so I, I was like, I don't want to do. I didn't want to do music for a while. I was, like, I was really impressed like, when I
1: wrote it, so maybe it was just there you go. Yeah,
0: yeah. But he's also nervous. <laughs>
1: nervous about how depressed I was.
0: But my question is, um, what artists, writers, have you maybe had that similar state of mind where you've been in awe? Or you've had even a little professional Dell City. Or...
1: I had it the other night listening to the Della Mitri song, Roll to Me. Okay, uh huh. See that song? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> really. Roll to Me, look mm-hmm.
4: around, you're a pretty, baby. Oh, is it baby. everything? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no.
0: yeah,
1: That's the kind of thing that I'm inspired by these days just terrible, like little <laughs> capsule, like, capsules of pop music that are just really brief and don't feel those bad catchy songs.
0: If,
3: don't feel bad if you can't write a song like that.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, no, you know, um, I felt that way about it. every Bob Dylan song. Yeah, I but you know, and I've tri- I've aspired to writing the, those types of songs. Like my early inspirations are like Neil Young and Bob Dylan and like uh, Joni Mitchell and like writing very introspective, uh, very wordy songs with like interesting imagery and stuff. Right. And I've tackled that for like three records now. But like, I've, my biggest challenge is writing like really effectively catchy, just like something that affects people. Um, very economically. Right. So that's almost the weird challenge I've saved for last. So like, that's... I hear like a really effective pop song these days and I'm like, wow. So easy, so simple seemingly. You know, so it's like it's a weird kind of challenge that I've psyched myself up
0: against. Yeah, to make a song that like gets in people's heads. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I want to do that with really weird evocative lyricism. So that's the combination I'm I'm really going for these days.
0: Right. Right. Um, So... As I, we talked about before, you studied poetry with Diane Mrakowski. That made me think of a couple of questions. And one was, I remember she had a problem with new formalism, like returning poetry to, to metrical and, and, and rhymed verse. Did she say it was like Reagan or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that was the thing, yep. And um, I was thinking about then your own lyrics, and I was thinking about how was your approach to writing poetry then different from writing lyrics? I mean, how, how did that change, or or did
1: it? Um, it? was. It's funny. She really had an effect on my songwriting, because... When I went to her class, my poetry was very undisciplined, and it was like my songs very indulgently written with no um, kind of n- no routine or structure. Um, and she was like, "This is not gonna, <laughs> it's not gonna cut it. Like you need tropes and you need revelation, and you need uh, more of a kind of ad- adhering to some personal rules that you need to employ for yourself." So my songs became uh, the place where I could rebel against her philosophy, like even more so. Like my songs got longer while my poems got more tapered and more. Um, like kind of well manicured, so I I would be like she can't tell me how to write a song, but she could tell me how to write a poetry, and I'd I'd welcome it because she, she, you know
3: she she always said songs and poetry were completely different things. Like song has a magic where if you don't where a metric doesn't matter so much. Mm-hmm. But it's funny she she enforced her own rules. Like she was against new formalism and like uh, scanning. Uh, too much but she she was uh, if you didn't follow her rule uh, or a couple of her rules you'd end up
0: at the bottom of the pile. <laughs> I heard that. Yeah. Um, the other thing a lot that,
1: of her rules have stuck with me for for the better, you know, very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. That was the, actually the other question I had is that she's associated with confessional poetry and made me think about this question I always ask musicians and they never say they are. I always ask them if they write, you know, confessional lyrics or if it's if it's not really if it's a mixture. And they always they, they never say that they're confessional. But how about yourself? Are you sure?
1: I mean, I'm not. It's not like
0: I'm confessing something. No, you are not but, confessing yeah. something. But you're, those are these are. Are you writing? Uh, are you writing non nonfiction? Are you are you writing fictionalized stories? Oh, writing,
1: everything I write is extremely. I, it's extremely true it, it's rooted in truth but it's like Diane uh, instills in students is like a personal mythology it's all based on a completely factual autobiographical stuff but it's twisted and exaggerated to the point of myth which and there's almost there's more truth in myth than the actual mundane kind of banality of the facts so um, I've, that, that's my the most, uh, the most fun and excitement I have in writing is where I can take how I can bend something into myth in and and that it gets bigger and reveals more of myself than just the, like what actually happened so it's exact it, it, i write to to reveal to myself it's i'm like a conf, confession confessional is weird. weird i read that she didn't like that term either so yeah i don't know <laughs> i mean, um well, I I, I I go for long walks and i think about like why i wrote these songs sometimes like what they meant like what was the purpose and i think um it's just so many different feelings in my life. It's, it's about feelings. They're like, different eras and, like, the way that just a certain era felt in such a nebulous, ineffable, um, just, like, a certain age of childhood, like, from six to seven. What did that feel like? And it's impossible to put into words, but that it's a everlasting, like, challenge for, my, for myself to try to, to put in, like, a very
0: specific feeling into words and into a song. Right. Um... How do you? How does the writing process, I mean, uh, with writing the words and the music, do you, I mean, it seems like with that many words, and in, in at least on the last album, it seems like you might have problems with the music overwhelming the words, or the words, you know, overwhelming <coughs> the music. How do you, do you, you write the, the lyrics first, or how does that work?
1: I, I write the lyrics and the music together, and then I bring it to the guys, and we kind of, you know, they help me uh, give it shape, give, I mean, give it. An attitude or lack thereof, you know, like what's the, what what kind of personality does the song have? Uh And there's so much that can be toned and shaped just with like the types of instruments we use, the, the dynamics, and
3: it's it's different for every song. Like some some of the songs, uh, when Matt does them, they just end up unchanged, and then some of the songs uh, we end up like changing, or not changing, but shaping. Like it depends kind of how formed they are when you when you come to us with them. Really, mm-hmm. like dealerships, dealerships. We really worked on the
0: arrangement a lot together. Uh, I talked to the musician Ladyland, the beekeeper, and every time she's in Michigan, she talks about how great a band you are. <laughs> she's um, wonderful. Man. Yeah, yeah. She mentions uh, like each time she mentioned you, like on stage particularly. Um, she mentioned you and Sufjan Stevens particularly, and I thought I felt like with Sufjan's Michigan album, um, Eternity of Dimming could also be seen as just a massive Michigan-themed album. Mm-hmm. And is that an intentional that you were like him? You wanted to be like, I want to just make a Michigan, like a thing that just my whole, Michigan? My is whole career just... is
1: Michigan themed, okay. just because that's where I've lived my whole yeah, life. It's yeah. just about making that yeah. nostalgia. It's not album. like a chamber of commerce. I love, I love that record and I love Sufian, but um, I don't approach it from like a novelty, like kind of like a postcard, like snapshot, glimpses of each town. Right. I, I only write about some, like a place of I'm personally compelled to write about something that happened to me. There. And all, I mean, he writes oh, about all so those true. like an incredibly personal. Uh, I'm not. I'm not like reducing them to shamer of converse mm-hmm. like uh, slogans and stuff. But he definitely plays into like the slogans and kind of uh, uh, greater o- outside perception on onto Michigan. Uh,
3: um. Were you at the show at the stick? Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, I, was, I think we were all there. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, were okay. You there? The most recent wasn't one. Was
1: I
2: there? No. I
0: missed yeah. It. yeah. Um, but, she opened for? hmm uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I probably second there then, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and uh, actually, I mean, there's yeah, there's so many references which you would only get. I'm getting all these references, um, well, Sylvan Lake (laughs) and uh, Somerset Mall and Thunderbird Lanes and everything. Like like I, I mean,
1: like just so much torturous, like a huge abundance of feeling in each of those places for me personally. That to be honest, every time I mention one of those places by name, it like makes it's a little trigger point of like gratification to me because it like. Just saying the name springs into action all these nebulous little uh, connotations that are very gratifying for me. Just to, just to say the word is a pleasant thing. It's a pleasant word for me to say. Right. Those proper nouns are very, they're just l- loaded little triggers.
0: For sure. Um, the format of this, a double album, it feels, it feels like it's designed as a concept album. I was thinking you could actually drive mo- like way into Michigan listening to the album, um, but its format means that I don't think I've ever had time to listen to it all the way through at <laughs> one sitting. And I was wondering, wh- what was the idea behind my, uh, making the massive album? Well, that's my first question. Yeah. What was the idea behind making a double album that was, you know, so big? Um, it just happened. You know, it, a it lot was kind of songs. It was more of like a why not? Because yeah, we had
1: we've been on the road for quite a while, and I had all those songs built up, and they all kind of seemed to uh, be kind of inextricably bound to each other thematically. Um, they all they all dealt with childhood in a very graphic way, um, like the pleasantries and the tragedies of childhood. Um, so yeah, uh, so, you know, the songs just kind of worked together. And Blonde on Blonde, you know, like I, I, I grew up just in love with double albums in large. A grandiose kind of projects. It, it was very. I always wanted to just to do one. Yeah. So. Do you
0: see it as a concept album in a way, or?
1: I don't see how it couldn't be. Okay. I, I feel like every record we ever make is going to be conceptual yeah. to some degree, because it's going to be, usually, typically a product of, of a certain period of, artistically in our lives. Um, so I, I think just by nature, it is conceptual.
0: And my other question on that is, how, what was the first time you actually listened to the album in its entirety one sitting? <laughs> I do it daily. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: I did it once. I did it once after driving all night. I think I'd driven like seven or eight hours or something overnight. I forget where we were going. And I laid down the middle seat of the van. And I told myself I was going to go to sleep. And I don't know why the hell I did it, but I started listening to the record. (laughs) And... And I stayed up and, and listened to the entire record for like you know another hour and a half. We were just driving it, through the
1: night somewhere. Yeah, and it was
2: like you know it was it was morning, and it, it was really it was really great. It was really nice. It sounded it sounded great. At the <clears throat> time. It was it was, a, it was a good it was a good moment. <laughs> and I he wept. And, <laughs> he wept. And I, it did it did actually really you know I was really proud of that of that that huge. Huge fucking thing that we that we put together. That's
1: somehow tied together with itself. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and, and, project, and then you know yeah. then I <laughs> slept like a baby <laughs> a
0: couple
2: hours after
0: that. It does almost seem like it's uh, like I would want to make it a special occasion to listen to the album. You know? yeah, saying, I mean, it's not. It's not casual. Like I wouldn't necessarily yeah. casually have it on. I'd be like, I'm now. I'm going to listen to this yeah. for two hours. It
1: didn't get us millions of new fans because you know it's a slow burner. People are still people who bought it maybe when it came out are just we get messages very regularly like oh my god just like for the first time listened to this thing in its entirety and like blew my mind or something you know we get very flattering things but very they trickle in like when
3: I buy a record and I listen to it sometimes I don't get to the end uh, you know and then and, and then, uh, so I'll go in phases like these three songs it's, everyone's probably the same way these three songs on mm-hmm. this record are my favorite song and then I wear them out and I go on to the next three mm-hmm. or so yeah. so imagine what 20 songs someone there, could just do that for a
0: long time with sure. that record <laughs> yeah if they wanted yeah I remember like I bought a Joanna Newsom album and I like listened to a few songs I'm like okay one day I'm gonna listen to this and I'll be ready for it. I'm not quite mm-hmm. ready for it mm-hmm. so I can see that people doing that with, yeah. your, with your album too
1: There was a nice constituency of people right off the bat that like made it a point to sit down and like like, I mean like diehard fans like we're gonna immerse ourselves in this because they they just want to see what the whole thing is about and we're really grateful for those types of fans yeah for sure for
0: sure Um, so you guys are not currently on tour is that correct well we're always sort of in between (laughs) we just got back from
1: Europe a couple like a week couple weeks ago okay I'd say we're in between now. Little, like, we went to Iowa last weekend, little one-offs and stuff like that.
0: Okay, okay. What? Um, my next Going question. Going down was,
1: to Texas in October.
0: Are you, do you guys have been touring? Do you tour by van, by bus, by? <laughs> what, what,
2: <laughs> usually question. by van. Yeah. By like just a white, big white, fifteen passenger van. But, but we've been. Uh, well, we we kind of started touring as a three piece because our, our drummers started grad school, so. And he started here, so we, we kind of just are doing this this three-piece thing. And we've been taking my 95 Pontiac Grand Am. Right. Jean-Claude Grand Am. Yeah. With a big, like, space saver on top.
1: In Europe, we had a nice Ford sedan, brand new. <laughs> yes. Dave was bulleting us down the Autobahn at, like, 200 miles per hour. That's so, nice. That's
0: <laughs> true. That's great. And you guys occasion you have, you don't have a bassist currently, but you occasionally have had a bassist? Mm-hmm. Or? Okay. We've had many bassists, okay our
1: good friend John Crone was recently, very recently playing bass for us. Then drummer is Ryan, um, a huge part of everything we've done is taking time to go to school. So now we're a three-piece, but the next record, as I was alluding to this kind of pop uh, direction, uh, we're going to definitely have a drummer and Anna, who's on all of our records, might come back and play some bass and right. sing. Which will be much welcomed by everyone involved, fans included. I'm sure.
0: So you're you're already planning a, another album? Is that? Oh it? yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah,
1: we're, we're about to start. Oh nice. Yeah,
3: we, we've we're been demoing playing it. Playing some songs tonight from
0: it. Oh yeah. cool, cool. Um, well, how was the process of recording this album different from the from the other albums? I mean, your current album. I mean, uh, the one working on now. No, uh, eternity, meant, of yeah, eternity of dimming. Eternity of dimming. Yeah
1: was the same. <laughs> <laughs> we recorded all three of our sure, our LPs in Ann Arbor, right in mm-hmm. this town, at our friend Jim Roll's studio, Backseat, and it's just like home away from home. So we're actually not doing the next one there just to challenge ourselves and do something a little not as kind of coddling of an atmosphere, just something different where we have to kind of be, you know, it'll be different by nature in that it's a different space, and uh, it'll just be you know, kind of uh, nice to see what else, what other sounds we can get.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, now that you've had some success, what have been some of the best moments on tour, playing with other people, performing in venues? What have been some highlights?
4: Nothing. That's
1: impossible.
0: So, so many great, we
1: need to, great highlights. One day we need to sit down and like list the stuff because we always get this question in interviews, and it's so hard to be put on the spot. I don't
3: know. We were just we just played a, a like a, a festival, in that it looked like a festival, but it was actually a birthday party for three people in this. Uh, very kind and wealthy family in uh, Norwich, uh, in England, and we slept on a llama farm. Slept on a <laughs> llama farm, and it was it was a blast. I, I would random say shit it, happens all the time. Yeah. It's
1: unbelievable that <laughs> yeah. We met. It was an alpaca farm. Oh, sorry.
3: Yeah, and we met this uh, this crazy band from Austria that was there. We hung out with them that night. Uh, it's just
2: nice meeting people like that. It doesn't sound that wild, though, does it? Uh, it was wild, though. Had <laughs> yeah. to be, be there. We had an amazing show at, at this festival called the End of the Road Festival in, in England. That was that was very incredible. And we we got stuck on the luckily got stuck on the main stage and with and just the three piece, which we were terrified about, and it ended up being just a really amazing show and a really generous, really awesome crowd who, who loved us and kind of just really really supported this where, where was
0: that
2: in England like yeah that was that was Dorset. a couple weeks ago it was in North Dorset nice. and then we did and then this festival is really cool because it's on these awesome old grounds of a farm estate and they have kind of secret shows all around the festival where artists even people that are super famous will kind of just go out into the woods and, and play a show like you know there's a little like stage set up with a it's like it looks like a living room, and it's like in a box. It looks like a diorama of the living room. Mm-hmm. And there's a piano in there, and, and, yeah. and I convinced these guys to do it. Yeah, we you know we did a couple of these <laughs> secret shows. One of them was on this like little pirate ship stage thing that we, and it, it was just a really, really nice, really, um, really unique festival. Cool,
4: unique
1: Oh, festival. I got so drunk that night. On, the girl from our British record label gave me a squeeze bottle full of rum, and yeah. I was like just quenching my thirst like a Gatorade commercial to the room. I had some of that
3: too I just gross. started
1: crying at one point and I I total, I tried to kick something and the ground was wet and I fell on my ass and I ate my first crumpet of my life and told them they needed to put sugar on it to make it like an elephant ear and they didn't know what I was talking about and I was dancing on the table that I was crumpet, made of a crumpet so. is great I I, also- I tend to dance on tables a lot in okay. Europe, especially in Europe when I get really drunk it happened in, in Brussels as well. I scared some, scared the hell out of some French Canadian girls.
0: Anyway, um, so I saw the Legend of Zelda video. That was you two guys, right? How did how did that come about? And and you know, how did that come about? I guess that's the
3: Well, question. Dave and I both share a love for video games, especially like Ocarina of Time and. In fact, once when we were in Philadelphia, we tried to beat The Legend of Zelda. The original. NES <laughs> any aspiration. We got really close,
2: too. I, I mean, we... Zach and I have always been kind of the two dudes in the band who are, who are kind of obsessed with video games, especially kind of classic video games. And, and there's so much great music and all of that stuff. And and Zelda has kind of, I think, some of, some of the best. And, and And we just... I don't know. We just came up with this idea that we were going to do a do some Zelda songs and like I, I kind of like arranged a, a little medley and we our friends do this video blog out of out of Omaha um what's it called here in Nebraska yep
1: Love
3: Drunk Love Drunk videos yeah it's the here, it's here in Nebraska people yeah 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 it.
2: and so we just we shot it it was shot in Ann Arbor it was shot up at the Law Quad in one of the arches in the Law Quad and we just did it. it kind of took off for a minute. I see you wrote Nintendo sixty four down here.
0: You yes, and that was because what I was gonna say was that it seems like a weird pairing to people at first, but then when I heard of the album and I heard you even mentioning Nintendo sixty four. I had my day in video games. Yeah, yeah.
2: He kind of <laughs> hates on it now,
1: though.
2: Oh, I know yeah,
1: I. I like Nintendo sixty four. That's why I sing about it all so much.
2: There's a little Easter egg in that in that song when he says Nintendo sixty four. You're gonna. You're gonna. <laughs> Should we reveal it? Yeah, it's about, That's it? what podcasts are for. Yeah, there's little secrets. Yeah, it's been long. There's a melody.
1: People have gotten right it though, on their yeah, own.
2: Yeah, a few people have gotten it. There's a little melody that like came up with the idea. To put it. It's from Zelda. It nice. comes in right after that. If you listen, because you get a prize if you name one <laughs> it. <Nice.
0: coughs> people have a lot of nostalgia for those old, oh, old yeah. video games, yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, yeah I had so a TRS-80 color computer, which is the, the worst. I got it at Radio Shack, and I you know, still play the game sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that's that's pretty much it. I, I asked my kids for questions for you guys, and this was the two questions. So if you could just answer these, and that's the last question. The well, first question was, what is your favorite color? And the second question is, what is your favorite animal? So, But if you could answer it like green dog, pink cat, that's, that's the answer.
1: I'm looking for. I just had a really weird dream where my ex-girlfriend got really mad because she Found out that I lied to her about my favorite color. But she's like, you oh, never. And she's like, she's like, I just heard that your favorite color color is seafoam green, and you never told me that. And like, and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. So I would say seafoam green caterpillar. Nice. Or moose. <laughs> <Caterpillar> <laughs>
2: or is this what is it? Favorite animal? The second one? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Which is color a... or Seafoam green moose. I don't know why caterpillar came in my head. Uh
4: favorite animal favorite animal that's really is it the hardest question, the hard
0: question of the night favorite animal. So, yeah, it's so yeah. hard uh, I don't know if you just make something up to you know yeah
3: no but I want to be honest <laughs> what is my favorite
2: animal
0: is it a mammal oh I know it's
2: a is it bigger than a, a forest green bonobo Oh, a bonobo? Oh. Definitely bonobo. You must lick my jacket, then. <laughs> I do you like forest green. Okay. Or red.
3: Yeah, probably forest green. I Still have to answer? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's... it's it, you got it for completion's sake. Okay, okay. Um... Let's say...
1: Can I guess? What yours is this? Okay. Hold on. Indigo turtle. Nice. Is that what you were said? I don't... I knew the... I knew the animal.
0: Thanks to the band for the interview. Check them out online at FrontierRuckus.com and see if they're maybe touring near you. Now, here's Mike with listener feedback and response on his topic of women in the workplace.
5: Hi, everyone. This is Mike Schwartz, and I'm here to jump right in and pick up the podcast where I left off last time, talking about women in the workplace. This is Women in the Workplace Part Two. So welcome back, and thank you to everybody who sent me feedback to my Yahoo account at Mike the Happy Wanderer uh at yahoo.com and still welcome to um, to give me feedback, thoughts, ideas, opinions. Really got some great stuff from from my friends, coworkers and other people out there. So I'm going to share some of that on the podcast today. But before I do, I wanted to jump right in and do a really quick recap of some of the statistics and uh, research that I I kind of surveyed last time. Several recent reports and surveys and books have noted both good news and bad news for American women, and I'll just start by recapping that. So good news, 75% of American women are now working, and 47% of the labor force is now made up of women, highest in our history, and of course, at 47%, women have achieved near parity with men. Bad news is that only represents a one percent gain in twenty years. Did hear some feedback from some folks that, well, what's what's the problem if women are at forty seven percent? Aren't they already, you know, achieved? Have they haven't they already achieved the greatest gains? And there's not much left to go. And that's true. Uh, women are almost at parity with men, and the growth in the last twenty years has been minimal, but hasn't had to be higher because now women are nearly there. Uh, And it is also true that women are graduating from college at a higher rate than men, and that in terms of sheer numbers, there are now more women working than men. Uh, So with those two statistics in mind, it's likely that women will actually overtake men in the workforce in the near future. But getting back to the good news and bad news. So other good news. Locally here in Washington State, we celebrate the good news that our state is number one in the number of women who work. But uh, when we looked at that, we also noted that many of those jobs are low-wage jobs, so that's not so good news. Uh, the good news nationally is that in the post-recession economy, women have benefited uh, and gained jobs faster than men. Um, 12 out of the 14 jobs on the rise are dominated by women since the recession. Bad news, again, those are really low-wage jobs for the most part. And the good news we celebrated is that 40% of households have women as the primary or sole breadwinner, compared with 11% in 1960. The bad news there is that actually two-thirds of those women are due to um, single moms taking low, low-wage jobs in order to pay the bills. So um, this overwhelming majority of that 40% is uh, single moms taking low-wage jobs with a small minority of married moms taking... Um, higher wage jobs. And finally, good news. The overall employment rate of married mothers with children has increased from 37% in 1968 to 65% in 2011. Bad news. This is conjecture, but I think it's probably true that most of that is driven by the fact that two households or two uh, parents in a household need to work in order to pay the bills in this day and age. So again, not so great news. Um, all right. Well, so jump right into the feedback that I heard from you all. Uh, I got a lot of good feedback locally from from some of my uh, co-workers and some of the employers we work with. And a lot of folks talking about huge increases in women in their workplaces, uh, in their HR departments and other departments. Um, some folks talked about affirmative action um, principles that are driving that. Others talked about um, girls getting interested in STEM education and going out to engineering jobs. Um, and also heard about um, heard from a lot of people about the need for affordable childcare and workplace flexibility. So that wasn't a surprise to me. Uh, kind of discussed with some of my friends and coworkers the pros and cons of a more robust government involvement in subsidizing childcare. The obvious pros are that well, childcare is then affordable and available. The cons would be that it's very expensive. And this goes for workplace protections, such as part-time work protection, and um, expanding family leave laws as well, such as in Europe, where they have quite generous family leave, but they also pay much, much higher taxes. Uh, Here in Washington, we also have fairly generous family leave. Um, The Family Medical Leave Act is a national law that requires a three-month leave for parents, but we actually have increased that in Washington State. Um, But it is more expensive or it is more burdensome for employers in some cases. Um, So anyways, I loved hearing about the um, progressive workplaces uh, around our state. But I also heard from people outside of our state, from some of my friends who live in other states. And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of that feedback. Some of my friends talked about how in certain professions, there's a real dominance of women, especially the professions they work in. So I have friends who are librarians, social workers. They work in development work, um, developing resources in third world countries. Um, They work in government, public assistance, social welfare, uh, education. All of those fields have been traditionally dominated by women. They also pay really low. Including my field, which is social work or um, workforce development. And it's, that is an interesting question. It's kind of a chicken or egg question. Do these jobs pay low because they happen to have a lot of women or do women, are women gravitating towards jobs that just happen to pay lower wages? Um, there's no easy answer. A lot of people have grappled with what is, what is the right thing to do or what is the right way to achieve, um, to, to pay what the professions deserve. For example, do truck drivers deserve more pay than teachers? Do engineers deserve more pay than social workers? You know, that, that I kind of want to steer clear of that conversation um, since most of these studies are fairly value neutral. Um, but it is interesting to, to think about why some professions pay more than others. Some of my respondents also talked about, um, you know, is it wrong if women are choosing to leave their jobs or take lower paid jobs? Is that is that a negative thing value wise for our society As it's more affordable for the family? And I do want to get into that a little bit more later on this podcast. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing if it makes sense for a family, but it is bad if women are provided with fewer options and they're they're the ones that are having to make those choices. And it is true also that if women are having to make those choices to leave work in order to raise a family because that's what makes sense economically, then there's probably less money to go around for that family. Um, but at the same time, a lot of you have talked about how impossible it is to have it all. For both parents to be working and to be there for the child and being, you know, good providers and raising their kids with all of the, uh, you know, all of the time and effort and energy that that takes. And that seems really true to me that it's impossible to, to have it all. And choices need to be made. And if it happens to be more women who are making the choice to be homemakers... Why is that a bad thing? So I'll get into that a little bit more. I I don't necessarily, like I said, want to make value judgments on the podcast. But at the same time, I've I've noted and others have as well that there are systemic factors at work that tend to steer women towards certain choices uh, and men towards other choices. And that's what I do want to get into later. A lot of folks who responded also just generally griped that working moms have it tough and I can totally agree with that. I actually look back at my own mom as an example. She she went to school while working full time as a Spanish teacher and raising two boys always at the same time willing to sit down after my dad came home from work and listen to him and his stories of, of his frustrations and stresses and you know at the job. My dad also of course listened to my mom, but you know she is a real example of, of the superhero mom who put it all together to, to basically be everything to everybody. And, uh, and I think that was hard on her. And I think it may not have been her choice, but I think she did a wonderful job and many, many other women are doing the same. Uh, let's see. And a few folks asked about the disparity in um, pay. Uh, and one person in Washington talked about why that might be the case here in our state in Washington, that there's a greater disparity in pay than any other place in the country. And you know, I've heard a lot of folks talk about the preponderance of IT and engineering and tech jobs here. And you know, those jobs tend to be dominated by men. And once you remove those jobs, the pay rate actually uh, disparity actually shrinks to a very minimal amount. So I think there's some truth to that for sure. I'll talk a little bit about another kind of what's another factor that's skewing that statistic of, of unequal pay. Uh, some folks also talked about the rise in part-time employment. Somebody uh, asked about whether Obamacare could be driving that, although it is worth noting that part-time employment, the rise in part-time jobs has really preceded Obamacare, and I think it has more to do with the recession and after the recession, the the an unstable recovery that we've experienced with employers, employers. Um, taking the lower risk option of hiring part-time and seasonal and temporary workers in place of full-time workers. And also the fact that a lot of those jobs that have increased and returned in large numbers after the recession tend to be the jobs that have more likely part-time employment. So retail, education, hospitality, those kinds of jobs, as opposed to manufacturing and construction jobs, which are more likely to be full-time. This also kind of touches on a conversation about The lack of middle-wage jobs after the recession, since most of the job growth has been low-wage and high-wage jobs. So a lot of the um, discussion of workplace practices and government um, kind of protections in the United States seem to kind of have an anti-family bias. A few people noted this. I've heard and talked a lot about this over over the years, and I don't think it's an explicit thing, but within our public policy, but. It really does seem that way when you look at the high costs of raising a family in our country, from just the cost of the medical care related to childbirth, to child rearing, to child care, to the cost of college, and to the fact that our country, in our country, we get less help in the form of tax breaks and government services and cash handouts than almost any other affluent nation in the world. Actually, one statistic I saw showed said that only Mexico and South Korea devote a smaller percentage of their gdp to family benefits so it really does seem like there's a disincentive in our country to having kids and actually i think it has had it started to have an effect on the u.s fertility rate um, it's kind of perverse in a way to think about that that we're actually discouraging in the form of public policy uh, the families and um, you know the raising of kids but unfortunately it's true that 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 we do seem to have a, a system that tends to punish uh, economically the, the more kids you have, and that burden does fall disproportionately on the poor. On a positive note, uh, some people just really did celebrate the fact that women are increasing in large numbers in some professions and that businesses are hiring more women for certain jobs, whether it's leadership positions, um, you know, financial and accounting positions, car dealerships, whatever it is, medical, legal jobs, etc. So I think, yeah, it's definitely worth lingering on this and celebrating this, and also noting that businesses are doing this for a reason. It's they're doing it because it's good for business and it's increasing their bottom line. I think, you know, any customer-driven business, you want to have people work there who look like you and reflect your values. And so, if women are shopping and women are customers, they'll often want to see women working behind the counters. Um, and women also bring certain qualities in terms of leadership qualities, emotional intelligence, uh, and frankly, just ability to sit still and concentrate on tasks. Uh, these are qualities that women have in in larger amounts than men, I'm probably making a sweeping generalization, but others have made the same. And communication skills is, is a common one. Creativity, problem solving. Women bring unique uh, angles and approaches to, to all of these tasks and businesses are realizing it and they're hiring more women so one of my uh, respondents noted that that women perhaps have a natural advantage when caring for kids and that's why women have defaulted to that homemaker role and surely throughout history that has been the case where that women defaulted because they were thought to be the the better parent or the more natural parent and could you know biologically could still be true in terms of just uh, you know breastfeeding nursing nurturing those kinds of qualities but i think the the beauty of having you know options is that men have just the same capacity to be good parents as women, um, as mothers. And so I think it's more about options than about what is natural or or what is the natural fit. I think for many families, it will be a natural fit for women to to stay at home and raise the kids, but others, it will be the case for men. I think that's worth celebrating that the fact that it's pretty fluid nowadays. So I guess if I were going to sum up, you know, a lot of the feedback I received, folks were... Uh, giving lots of ideas about why they thought women were now uh, represented in higher numbers in the workforce. And those ideas range from the fact that women are now more educated than men, that women bring a fresh approach to many professions, uh, including some specific examples that were given uh, in uh, in various fields. And that also dual incomes now are more of a necessity in our over-mortgaged and debt-ridden age with both parents needing to work to support the families. Um, You know, other ideas that I I think a few folks mentioned include rise in divorce rates, so single mothers, more single mothers having to work. Um, And also folks echoed what um, Hannah Rosen talked about in her book, The End of Men and the Rise of Women, which is that the worst hit sectors of the economy during the recession were sectors dominated by men, construction, manufacturing, finance, uh, and that, as I've mentioned, of the fourteen jobs on the rise, twelve of them have women dominating them. So those include um, jobs in the kind of retail, education, uh, tourism sector, those kinds of jobs. Some folks also offered up ideas um, to to create a more equitable, workforce and public policy in our country. And a lot of those are my liberal friends, so I apologize at the outset to anybody who's more conservative listening to this. But those talked about um, policies that would ensure equal pay for equal works and also raising the minimum wage, which is is a common one, Uh, extending workplace benefits for part time and low wage workers and expanding Family Medical Leave Act to cover longer periods of leave. Um, which is, of course, as I discussed, a very expensive option. We also have in Seattle uh, the paid sick leave law, which is a new law that requires employers to offer paid sick leave, uh, which I think is a really good law and actually has a beneficial effect for women since they're often the ones who um, who call in sick to take care of the sick child uh, at home. Finally, um, child care came up again and again, raising new revenue to expand access to affordable quality child care. So these, you know, I don't want to just, uh, you know, espouse the liberal viewpoint that, that, you know, more government, you know, more taxes equals, equals better society. You know, there are disadvantages to these policies and it's worth reviewing them other than the fact that they're really, really expensive. Um, for example, uh, one of the feedback that I received was about how with, Extended parental leave, that actually sometimes encourages parents to stay out of the workforce and um, also makes women or the parent who ends up taking advantage of expanded leave more likely to, to be more expensive and more of a risky hire for a business. And, it, and I think there's some truth to that. I think actually there was a study in Europe that showed that the longer the leave for uh, women or parents, the less likely they were actually are to return to work. So there's a risk for employers on that. Also, with like protections for part-time employment, that may actually steer women more towards part-time work, uh, which, of course, affects their earning potential. Okay, so in the time remaining, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the gender pay gap. I heard a lot of feedback about that, and I want to kind of probe a little bit more deeply into that statistic that nationally women earn 77 cents for each dollar paid to men. And here in the um, Seattle area, it's actually 73 cents to the dollar. As I mentioned, it's the worst in the nation here. Uh, I actually attended a forum on this topic recently hosted by the city of Seattle. uh, And it was really emphasized at that forum that this is not a women's issue, but it's a whole family issue, which is true because it's about, you know, the money that a whole household earns to put bread on the table. We actually got into small groups at the end of the forum to brainstorm ways to address this discrepancy. Um, you know everybody agrees that wages should be equal uh, and that you know it's probably good for business for businesses to pay equal wages. Um, but nobody really believes that it's because employers are purposely paying women less. Uh, it's, it seems to be a very complex problem requiring complex solutions. Um, the first thing, though, I want to talk about is that statistic, which is is kind of a uh, controversial one because it's a little bit inaccurate and misleading. The statistic of seventy seven cents on the dollar is based on a full uh, full time work, which is defined as thirty five plus hours a week. However, it's true that men work more hours than women, so. It's natural that men would get paid more than women if they're working more hours. Uh, So it doesn't account for equal hours. And the second thing to say about the statistic is that it doesn't account for occupation or industry. Uh, And, you know, as we've discussed all throughout these podcasts, men tend to congregate in higher paying professions. Um, And, of course, I think that's the reason why Seattle has a larger pay gap than other parts of the country. Is because we do have such a concentration of engineering and technical jobs here. So this all raises, I, I think, a different but related question about why men are steered towards certain occupations and career choices, and women are steered towards others. Uh, Since so not just jobs, but um, you know, women working fewer hours and who quits when there's a baby and those kinds of questions. So anyway, there was a, a second study done that actually did compare apples to apples and. Um, looked at men's and women's wages for the same job at the same hours. And when they did this study, they found that women get 91% of men make. So it's a much smaller wage gap than the 77% or 77 cent uh, number. Uh, but it's still a disparity, uh, which which is a problem. I think, though, that it's just the greater problem is the gender polarization or segregation that's happening in occupations. You know, the question of why women are... Um, are working in lower paid professions and whether our society values men's professions or professions that happen to have more men uh, more than women. So is it discrimination? Is it rational choice? What's going on? And if it is discrimination, you know, it doesn't have to be the simple kind. As I mentioned earlier, the employer choosing not to hire women for certain jobs because they don't think they can do the work or they don't want women in those jobs. It could be a more systemic form of discrimination, you know, a system that steers women towards certain occupational choices. Many uh, sociologists have looked at this problem, and actually there was a lecture here locally at the University of Washington a few months ago where a philosopher named Sally Haslinger um, talked about um, gender wage Gap, and she used a an example, a thought experiment, using an imaginary couple, uh, say Larry and Lisa. And Larry and Lisa are both equally intelligent, talented, educated, and experienced in this in this example. So Larry, Larry and Lisa, being equal in all things, decide to have a child. And when they do, they did they have to make some choices. Decent childcare in in their area of the country is beyond their means, and women also earn less than men in their area, for whatever the reason. So under these conditions, it might be considered reasonable and rational that Larry would work full-time and Lisa would decide to make adjustments, including, say, lowering her hours to part-time or taking time off work or even deciding to take a less demanding job in terms of hours, which probably would mean less pay as well. So this choice, this very rational choice that Larry and Lisa make, means that Some employers will see women as a bigger risk since women might have a child, as was the case here, and change their commitment to work, as was the case with Larry and Lisa. It was not Larry who decided it was Lisa who or both of them who decided that Lisa would would either leave her job or request part time work, which means that in the employer's eyes. Women may be a bigger risk or a bigger cost. This, in turn, also reinforces a pattern where employers invest less in their female employees. So what we have is a vicious cycle uh, where you know Larry and Lisa are making what seems to be a rational choice for Lisa to work less hours. The employer is thus punished in a way for hiring Lisa over a man because you know she posed a risk that turned out to come true that she would have a child and work less hours thus that employer chooses maybe unconsciously to invest less in women. Uh, So I guess some things to consider in this scenario or thought experiment is so what is the ostensible reason for Lisa quitting her job or making her adjustment to her job. Uh, Well, the triggering cause in this scenario is childcare because there's not affordable childcare in their area but then when we ask is there a deeper cause then we get to kind of the structural or the systemic reasons why it's Lisa who quits her job or decreases her hours as opposed to Larry. And this question has more to do with Lisa's earning potential and position in the workplace. You know, clearly she has less earning potential than Larry. So it makes sense for her to lower her hours. Um, and that's the vicious cycle. Be, you know, she has less earning potential because employers in the region Note that women are more likely to leave their jobs to raise their families. Um, Lisa obviously has less workplace flexibility uh, as well, which may be why she quits her job instead of switches to a part-time job. Uh, Or that employer maybe is not able to pay for parental leave, for maternal leave for Lisa, um, which could be the case as well. Um, And it even could be true that Lisa's socially rewarded for quitting her job, you know, just might be the kind of thing where, you know, it's greeted with admiration, uh, as opposed to uh, if Larry were to leave his job to to raise the kids, he might be socially penalized. And that may be something as subtle as, you know, a raised eyebrow or a questioning glance or, you know, uh, you know, uh, actually straight out asking Larry why he chose to make such a decision. Um, So there are gender based stereotypes clearly that come into play as well. So I guess all of this is just to sum up what sociologists call choice architecture and choice architecture is is the very hidden, you know, factors and influencers that are steering people to making certain choices. So Lisa makes a choice. Lisa and Larry make a choice that seems rational, rational for them. And it seems as if Lisa is doing what she wants to do by being the one to quit her job or to make work adjustments. Uh, you could even make the case that the employer in this scenario is acting rationally, even if it's not consciously, by not investing as much in female employees. You know, they're a greater risk. So um, why would an employer even invest equally in a, in a woman employee compared to a man? I guess, you know, this is, there are no easy answers to any of this or ma- magic bullets. Um, even things like, you know, subsidized or affordable child care or longer paid maternity leave really aren't solutions. They're just, they're just things that can kind of help address the problem. Um, you know, especially with other challenges such as women defaulting to be the caregivers in their household because that's what's expected of them or persistent assumptions and stereotypes about women and men's work, you know, why women say, more often choose to be nurses than doctors. There was another research study recently, too, that actually produced similar results to this thought experiment that Sally Haslinger posed at the University of Washington. It was a research study on MBAs by Claudia Golden and Lawrence Katz. And by the way, I'll put up all the links to this these research uh, studies and articles on my Twitter feed. At um, I'll read that at the end of the podcast. But this study tracked male and female MBA graduates MBAs graduating from the University of Chicago from 1990 to 2006 and so first the researchers controlled for previous job experience then they controlled for GPA chosen profession business school course and job titles so basically they compared apples to apples and so right out of school they found that there was only a tiny differential in salary between men and women which may be because of a lingering bit of discrimination, or maybe because women are worse at negotiating starting salaries, which studies have also shown. But then when they looked 10 to 15 years later, the gap widens to 40%, almost all of which is due to career interruptions and fewer hours. So this study kind of proves exactly what that, that thought experiment shows that women are making choices to uh, reduce their hours or change their jobs or lower their commitment to work because of children basically raising kids. So I guess in order to sum up everything, I'll just say that there are no easy answers uh, and that I think it's something that we should a conversation we should continue to have. I know I will in my workplace. I hope you all will too. And I hope you found this of some value. This again is not going to be my typical type topic for this podcast, but I'm really glad that you came along with me and please do continue to send me feedback at mike the happy wanderer at yahoo.com. I'll do my best to respond personally to each and every one of you. And I look forward to joining you on the next podcast. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Mike. Now get back in the kitchen and fix me dinner. I mean it. Up next, Dan Hartman reviews No Easy Day by Mark Owen. Not his real name. The jacket cover states, No Easy Day puts readers alongside Owen and the other hand-picked members of the 24-man team as they train for the biggest mission of their lives. The blow-by-blow narrative of the assault, beginning with the helicopter crash that could have ended Owen's life, Straight through to the radio call confirming bin Laden's death is an essential piece of modern history.
6: This is a review of the book No Easy Day, the first-hand account of the mission that killed Osama bin Laden, by Kevin R. I believe that is a pseudonym. This book reminds me very much of a mindless action movie. The cast of characters includes the requisite macho seals, the paper pushing bureaucrats, the hard nosed but secretly vulnerable female CIA operative, and the practical joker with his trite and often juvenile sense of humor. Supercharged shoot em up sequences? Check. A plot that is big on action and short on details? Check. Sex toy and broad jokes for the pubescent boys in the audience? Check. Military technology for the geeks? Checks. If it was fiction, it would be trite and dumb. What saves the book and makes it worth a read is that it's not fiction. It's real, and with that come a few nods to reality. For one thing, these fellows, and they are all fellows, train, and they train hard. In my opinion, the most interesting part of the book was learning how the SEALs trained for the Osama bin Laden mission. For weeks, they practiced raiding a full-scale model of the compound, preparing for contingencies and developing backup plans. For another thing, the author acknowledges several times during the book that in spite of all the training, and in spite of the supreme physical fitness and extraordinary bravery of the SEALs, there is still an inevitable component of dumb luck that plays into every mission, including the UBL mission. Upon several occasions, the author and his fellow SEALs end up owing their lives to mistakes or simple good fortune. These doses of reality, coupled with the fact that the names in the book are the names of real, recognizable people, make the book very interesting. I feel that a book review should focus on the book, not the author, but in my closing paragraph, I'll just comment that the author took great pains to not disclose any confidential information that might compromise national security. There's been a lot of controversy over the publication of this book, and perhaps the author has broken promises that he made to the government and his fellow soldiers. However reprehensible that may seem to some, he has not, in my opinion, done any actual damage to our security. I will also say that the author and his fellow SEALs And soldiers are all unbelievable people, brave, fiercely loyal to one another and this country, and driven beyond belief. I am humbled by the sacrifices that they make. On the other hand, I am unimpressed with the author's dismissive attitude towards government in general, and President Obama specifically. He gives very little credit to the managers of the operation who made the UBL raid successful, and pouts about Obama taking credit for the success of the mission. It's not a good book, per se, but it's enjoyable, and I found it compelling.
0: Thanks, Dan. Up next, a new feature on the show, Song of the Week. And I'll tell you how you can get involved afterwards.
5: Hi, it's me again, Mike Schwartz. And I'd like to introduce a new segment on the Hunting for Candlelands podcast. This segment is our favorite Song of the Week segment. It's where me and other guests will discuss their favorite song of the week. Annie Morricogna is the most prolific composer in film music, having composed more than 400 film scores. He achieved fame as the man who, in the words of one critic, put the opera in horse opera, composing spaghetti western music, the cheap and violent westerns filmed in Spain and Italy in the 1960s. But I wanted to feature Morricogna as the first song of the week feature for a different reason because one of his more famous tunes provides the perfect soundtrack for the fall season. Many of Morricone's scores fit this mood. Sure, he's often known for his beautiful operatic soundscapes combining classical instrumentation with cheesy, sleazy effects, full orchestras combined with cheapo keyboards, string sections paired with rock drums, and music that plays as big a part in his films as the characters, underscoring their every thought and action with a vast palette of psychedelic, surreal accents. The sounds of whistles, whips, chains, bells, toy pianos, clockwork dolls, and the ever-fascinating, sublimely sexual vocalese of Edda Dalorso. But Morricone has a reflective side as well. It's this side of Morricone that I love the most. Music that conjures up images of leaves swirling, clouds gathering, and lovers resting. Plucked guitars and swelling strings softly billow around you like autumnal winds. There seems to me two dominant modes in Morricone's music, the suspenseful mode, driving strings dramatically portending gunfights, murders, slave rebellions, and high-speed chases. This is the mode often heard in the gunfight scenes in spaghetti westerns like A Fistful of Dollars and The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, as well as Italian horror films known as giallos, and crime ja- dramas known as poliziotteschi. And then there's this more reflective and haunting romantic Morricone the classical, sentimental, sweeping, dramatic mode most often heard in his American and international films, like The Mission, The Battle of Algiers, *Quemada*, Once Upon a Time in America, Days of Heaven, and The Untouchables. The song Ki Mai, spelled C-H-I-M-A-I, is in this latter mode. It's a beautiful, sentimental ballad that strikes me as one of the best songs ever for the fall season. It's the sound of violins crying as the summer passes into the chilly fall. It's the sound of leaves falling from the trees. It's an intensely haunting tune which brings to mind a combination of romance and horror, which makes it a perfect opening for October, the month of Halloween. The song Chi Mai was composed for an Italian film named Madalina, but it's been used many times since in other films about criminals, mute gunslingers, prime ministers, and even in a French dog food commercial. But the song has a life of its own, and whenever I hear it, I can't help but think of the golden larch trees in the Cascade Mountains, or a favorite sweater and the comforting heat of a cabin fireplace. There's sadness and loss there, too, and a bit of cheesiness. But these disparate elements just make the song sound sweeter, Whenever I hear it, it casts a golden pallor on everything around it. There are many great songs that cry autumn. Jimmy Spheris' I Am The Mercury, Nat King Cole's Autumn Leaves, Kurt Vale's September Song, and Vashti Bunyan's Rose Hip November come to mind. But very few songs can express the emotions of the entire fall season, like Kimai. Listen to it as the leaves change color and begin to fall from the trees, and you will be forever enthralled.
0: would like to contribute your song of the week send me an audio clip mb3 or m4a is fine of you talking a little bit about your song why you love it so much due to copyright reasons i'll only include 30 seconds of the song you choose however send it to candle ends at candle and thanks for listening this week um, to close us out we have a frontier ruckus song they Generously allowed me to choose a song from *Eternity of Dimming* to to put in the show this week, and I literally spent a whole week and a half trying to figure out what to choose. Um, it kind of felt like any song I would choose was like ripping a page out of a book. I'm trying to show you that because some of the song, a lot of the songs uh, go from one song into the next one, um, and I feel like there's sort of almost little chapters in a book. Now that might just be me. But, anyways, I finally picked one. This is Junk Drawer Sorrow off of Eternity of Dimming.
4: Sauce pipes are coughing out some winter, it's a splinter of what I once contained, and I suppose the whole world glows a little for the winter But you a call and all that fire. Air. Wallet, junk drawers that us whorish people know. Will the junk collects interminably? Other things will certainly thaw away, so swollen with the snow. Apologize the world you're from, the nervous taste of chewing gum. Some high school faces, basements you protect. But in the spring, the cork I'll find in the side yard to remind. The New Year's souvenirs I must collect sun looks pretty hot today the snow's about to rot they say so maybe i'll drive all the way to lansing if nothing's able to stay static perhaps we left some strips of fabric bloodied up streaming in the fencing that the hospital's waiting for all without stall it will ball all the life out of lost. The pile past is cataloged and tossed into where it is stored in some vestigial organ. It pumps inside of me. violin the memory. Bathroom tile of ivory. The carpet sponges so absorbently nothing Softness, heart critics can't process me. The tree I live in. I will pluck the soft weight of ripe love, the sticky teenage sweet type of respite that the black night bites are given. It's probable I'm unstoppable by all that tries to chastise the damp eyes, my my. Way.